0: continuing our ten commandments we're on number 3 Exodus 27 says you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain for the lord will not hold him guilty who takes his name in vain and i don't know some of your backgrounds if uh, how you were raised in your family or in your environment at work how uh, G.D. is used on a regular basis. Maybe before you came to know Christ, you, you used that as a part of your language. Hopefully, as you come to Christ, He pricks your heart and He, he brings a, a uh, contrition and a repentance for using that. But it's, it's more than just saying the name like that. It's a... It's a reverence. It's it's not having a reverence for the Lord. It's not having a respect for the Lord. Um, Not in just what we say, but in in the things that we do as well. So, um, let's all pray this prayer of confession. Almighty God, God, whose whose love endures forever,
1: and whose name name is holy, how often have we turned away from you and not treated your name with fear and reverence. Forgive us, Lord, and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, be gracious to us. And by the grace of your Holy Spirit, sanctify us and conform us in the image of Christ. Amen.
2: i
0: darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Heavenly Father, thank you for this assurance that you have given us an unworthy people, Lord, an assurance of salvation, an assurance of of your, your grace and mercy on us, Lord. Father, may we walk in obedience to that in Jesus' name, and may you be blessed, and may you be honored, and may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. So our Baptist Catechism today is uh, answering the question, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? You can all read this with me that would be swell. The benefits the which in, in this life do accompany or, or flow from or just-
1: justification, adoption, and sanctification, and sanctification are assurance of God's, of God's love, peace of, of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, Spirit increase of grace, and, and perseverance therein to the end. You all um, I have the honor and privilege this morning of introducing to you guys Darren Caldwell, my good friend. We go way back probably five or six years. He flew all the way from Utah uh, to be with us this morning. Um, you might have heard us pray for Covenant Grace Church in Utah. They just planted um, a couple months ago. So we've been praying for them and it's amazing that he came out here, not only for this morning, but for Constitution. Later today, you'll see more of him. But um, asked him to preach this morning to bring the word. And what a special way that, you know, someone we've been praying for for months, we get to hear from him and, and that community and union that comes with that. So um, without further ado, uh, Darren <laughs> <laughs> you don 't have to applaud <laughs> <laughs> like? <laughs> <done with> <laughs> At least not until after,
3: right? <laughs> Well good morning it 's uh, it's a real pleasure for me to be with you guys today. Uh, like Kendall said we 've gone uh, way way back. Uh, known Kendall and Emily for a while. Um, we really became friends when we burned our mouths together on super hot spinach and artichoke dip at <laughs> Slackwater Pub and Pizzeria back in Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, and ever since then, we would hang out and talk theology and argue with one another. And uh, mm-hmm. and uh, just really, God's just blessed uh, my wife and I, um, my wife Kayla and I, and our kids with friendship with Kendall and Emily. And and it's a blessing to not just be here as Uh, personal friend of of Kendall's, but to be here as a representative of Covenant Grace Church. Um, Since we're an hour ahead, they haven't done it yet, Um, but back in Utah today, uh, our church, we've we've prayed for you guys a couple of times and and shared with what God has been doing here in Decatur, but uh, today uh, our church will be taking some special time in the middle of the service to pray for you guys. and so, and not just pastorally, but the whole church will be praying for you guys. And so, I hope that that's an encouragement to you, that you're not alone, um, that you're not, even as you go on this really exciting and sometimes really scary journey of, of a church plant, that uh, there are other churches uh, that are praying for you guys and care deeply for you guys, and they're excited to hear back from me about who all of you guys are and what God's doing here. So, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here for all of those reasons. Uh, and as I was preparing to preach, I remember I was thinking through. Uh, I think it's in Acts 11, when the church had been scattered by persecution, and the uh, and the disciples. Some of the disciples went to Antioch, and they didn't just share the gospel with the Jews. They started sharing the gospel with the Gentiles, and that the word came back to the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent a man of encouragement to come here and see what was going on. And Barnabas came. And he saw, what well, he said, he saw the grace of God in their midst. And he encouraged them to stand fast, to be steadfast in their love for the Lord. So that's my hope today, okay. is that today will be an encouragement to you all to stand fast, to be steadfast in the love of the Lord. Our scripture reading today is going to be uh, from John 20, verses 19 through 22. On the evening of that day, said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this day, this first day of the week that we can gather to worship you, to proclaim your name, to rest in your finished work. God, we confess that we are the same as these disciples. We are weak. We are full of fear, anxiety, trouble. Father, even the best of us, sometimes especially those of us who look the best on the outside and look like we have it all together, are like those who lock themselves in an upper room for fear. God, I pray that you would encourage and strengthen us by the proclamation of your word and your gospel Father, I pray that you would order my thoughts and my words, that they might be pleasing in your sight. Father, I pray that you would grant the gift of faith and repentance through the power of your Spirit, that we might hear, that we might know, and that we might behold you, Lord Jesus, and that we would be changed in that beholden from one degree of glory to the next. Father, I pray this in your holy and precious name. May you bless the preaching of your word today. In your name. Amen. Can you remember a time when you were full of fear? You are terrified. Uh, for me, most of those times come around water. Um, my wife would be horrified. She loves water. She wanted to be a marine biologist. Water terrifies me. Um, there was a time, I was, uh, I was 18, I was leading a youth group. I had just graduated college, and I was helping out with the youth group in my church. And uh, the elder who was overseeing me thought, hey, let's go take the kids, and we're going to go to the sand dunes in Colorado. Um, but on the way, let's go like on this little rafting trip, no real rapids or anything like that, in, on the Colorado River. And so, long story short, we set out way too far up. I'm paddling a giant raft with a bunch of junior hires who definitely are paddling. And, uh, and we finally hit like just a stretch of some bumpy water, and the elder who was overseeing me, who was in the raft as well, thought it would be fun to put us in sideways. Uh, well, we went over a giant rock, and a few of us fell out, and I got sucked into the hydraulics of the rock, and was underwater for, I don't know how long, a couple of minutes, I thought I was going um, that was the most fearful that I can remember being, where I'm crying out, just asking God to save me, hoping to get out, out of there, and, and somehow, uh, by God's grace, pop out of the water and uh, didn't die, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, that plus growing up in California, watching the movie Jaws, anything with the water. <laughs> well, maybe you can remember a time like that when you were overwhelmed. But beyond that, we live in a culture of fear. Whether it's a political culture of fear, whoever wins on the right, whoever wins on the left, is going to ruin and destroy our country and our freedoms and everything. Right? Our political system is driven by fear. Our advertising is driven by fear—fear fear that you won't be as satisfied as you could possibly be. You know, our culture, even today, especially our younger, those who are younger, have a—we live in a constant fear. Of missing out, right? FOMO. Uh, is that still a thing? I'm getting old. Um, but it's a fear. There's constant anxiety, this constantly being overwhelmed with fear that you're going to miss something. There's anxiety about the troubles of the day. When you're new parent, anxiety over whether or not your child's going to sleep through the night and how you're going to manage living on two, three hours of sleep day in and day out. As your kids get older, I've heard, my ch- my oldest is nine, but I hear as they get older, you're just even more worried as they go out of the house. And so we constantly live in fear. Well, the disciples, and our fear is a very American fear, right? There's our brothers and sisters around the world living fear for their very lives and living the same type of fear that the disciples have here in John 20. And so as we set the scene, the context for this, in John 20, It's right after Jesus has appeared to Mary and proclaimed that he's alive. John and Peter have run to the tomb. They've seen the empty tomb. They know that that Jesus is alive. So when would that be a time of rejoicing? Well, it says in verse 19 that they were in the upper room. Actually, that's in Luke that says the upper room. But they are in a room. They were gathered together on the first day of the week. That the doors were locked because they were afraid of the Jews. The Jews had spread the lie that the disciples had taken Jesus from the tomb and they knew that they were in danger of their lives being taken just like Jesus' was. And I wonder, we don't, we don't see it in the text, but I wonder if maybe they were even afraid because they themselves had abandoned Jesus and now Jesus was back. What would this risen Lord do? to those who failed to stand by him. It's very sad. Again, we don't see that in the text, but I wonder if that was part of their fear. And this also happens to be on the first day of the week after the resurrection of Christ. It's the very first New Covenant church meeting. All the disciples gathered together on the day of the Lord's resurrection for the very first time since he rose and in this passage what we see is the heart of what it is to gather together as a church what we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus gathers his church by giving peace and this equips us to give peace to a world Jesus gathers his church by giving peace and this equips us to give peace to a world so we're going to look at uh, three, three points uh, from this today, and I went as Baptist as I possibly could. Uh, we're going to look at the gift and the giver of peace, the, the giving of peace, and the gathering of peace. So the gift and the giver of peace. In verse 19, it says that Jesus came despite the locked door, And he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And we see here two very important things. Who it is that proclaims peace, and who it is that heard that proclamation of peace. The one who is proclaiming peace is Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. The one who came to earth, the second person of the Trinity, who took on flesh, who stands, as Job says, with his hand on both God and man, who alone can mediate between the two, who alone has the authority to proclaim peace. We saw that in, in the Gospels earlier, right, that, that Jesus proclaims your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees look at him and go, who can forgive sins but God? Well, Jesus can. He has the authority to. And this one who proclaims peace is that God. He is the risen Lord, who has proven that he is the firstborn Son of God The preeminent one. The one to whom all the earth owes their allegiance and their worship. That is the one who proclaims peace. And he proclaims peace to the disciples. Note that the first people that heard the proclamation of peace was the church. Peace is proclaimed to the church first. These would be the last people. I expect, in the city, who would have thought that they were worthy of this case? As the temptation of Jesus in the garden occurred, and he labored in prayer, they were the ones to whom Jesus came and said, can you not pray with me even an hour? These were the ones who, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, fled in fear that all of his friends abandoned him. Even to the point where it fulfilled the passage in Zechariah that the shepherd was struck and the people fled. The shepherd who was struck was left alone. These are the disciples who, when confronted by a servant girl, denied even knowing him, swearing an oath. These are the ones who were hiding out in fear, not knowing what would happen to them. And these are the ones to whom Jesus said, J.C. Ryle, uh, the Anglican pastor from the 1800s, said that the first words that our Lord spoke to the disciples afford a beautiful proof of his loving, merciful, tender, thoughtful, pitiful, and compassionate spirit. The very first word. J.C. Ryle says, it's as if Jesus is saying, once more I stand among you, and once more I proclaim peace. Not excommunication. Not rejection from my friendship, Not belief, but peace. This is the heart of the gospel. This proclamation of peace from God to man through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that heart of the gospel stems from the very heart of Christ. This is not something that he said through gritted teeth or begrudgingly, but something he said joyfully and willingly. He longed to offer peace to his disciples. He longs to offer peace to us. And the kind of peace he offers, Jesus prepared them for this in John 14, 27, where he said, "The peace I, My peace I give to you, but not as the world gives do I give this to you. So what kind of peace do we see from the world? We would see from the world an offer of peace from persecution, if you, will, if you agree with us, especially, for, again, for those outside of America, but we see it maybe even increasingly some in our country, if you agree with us, then you won't lose your jobs. You won't lose your family. You won't lose your life. The world would offer a peace from persecution, or the world might tempt us with a peace from our temptation as we deal with the temptations of the flesh, as we deal with the war that rages inside of our hearts, the world would say, just give in. It'll be over. You don't have to fight. You don't have to stand against this same. Just give in. There's peace there. Knowing that that door leads to death. It might offer peace from worldly trials. If you're going through this, just log onto Amazon, buy a few hundred things, and you'll feel better. <laughs> right? We offer peace from our worldly trials. take this, do this, go on this trip, and everything will feel better. But maybe most of all, what the world offers us is a legalistic peace. Mm. A peace that comes from the feeling that if I'm just good enough, if I do just enough right things, if I beat myself up enough for all of the sins that I've committed, then I can feel okay. Then, I'm, then God will accept me. I know that we all wrestle with this, because that's the natural heart of of, of all mankind, is to be a legalist and a Pharisee. To think that at some level we can be good enough that we won't stand under the justice of God. That's the peace that the world would offer to us. But what kind of peace does Jesus offer? He says, this is not a peace of this world, but the peace from the heart of Christ. The peace he offers is an eternal peace with God, one without your efforts and with great reward. It is one without your efforts and with great reward. This is the promise. This peace of God, this peace from the mouth of Christ, is the promise of a better home. Where moth and rust won't destroy the world would offer us a home. Here's your home. You can have, perse- you can have peace from persecution and trial here. Jesus says, no, you don't." when I give you my peace, I'm not offering you peace from persecution here, but I'm offering you an eternal home where moth and rust won't destroy. It's a peace and a promise of forgiveness for those who fail. This peace that Jesus offers is a promise. That when you seek the Lord, as uh, 1 John 1 tells us, when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The justice of God in Christ demands our forgiveness for those who would confess and fall in Him. It's a promise of help for those in need. Of help for those in need, that when we cry out to Him, He will hear. It's a promise that your life is hidden with Christ and the world and all that has come against it cannot touch your life. It is the rock-solid hope that the work is actually accomplished. That when Jesus said, it is finished, it is finished. That he doesn't say, I give you my peace, I've made peace. As long as you satisfy your side of the bargain, as long as you satisfy your side of the treaty. You no, know, Jesus stands as man and God saying, It is finished. I've satisfied it. It is done. The blood that should have been poured out by you for your sin has been poured out by me. The perfection that you owe me as God has been done by me as your Savior. And it is one. It is done. It is finished and accomplished. There is no greater peace than to stand before God, the living and holy God, and know that you are friends with him because Jesus won it. That there's nothing you have to do to earn that friendship. Sometimes, I know we feel like this in our earthly friendships, like, oh, I want to be friends with that person, so I'm going to go buy him some like, cookies or something like that. And, you know, we do this with our neighbors, right? Here's some cookies at Christmas, and this might make us friends. right? We don't have to do that with God. It's already accomplished. It's already won. We have, past tense, peace with God that is eternal and abiding. And Jesus emphasizes this when he comes and he shows them his hands and his side. He shows them the marks of peace. The marks of peace. That his hands, his feet, and his side were pierced for us. And they saw this they were glad. This peace that Jesus won for us brings us joy. It should cause in us a, a, a wellspring of joy to come. That we are glad when we see and behold this peace, this Jesus who is won for us eternal life, who is won for us the Father himself, who has brought us to God. And then he says again, he doesn't leave it with just the first, peace be with you. But he says again, peace be with you. He says it twice. I love in Isaiah 57. We see this as well. I'm reminded in, uh, in Daniel. <clears throat> Daniel, uh, not Daniel, Joseph, Genesis. Uh, Joseph reminds Pharaoh that because God gave him that dream twice, that it is firm and settled that it will surely happen soon. Well, here Jesus tells us, peace be with you twice. I'm just going to read Isaiah 57, verses 14 through 21. It says, and it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Peace, peace to the far. To the near, says the Lord. This Lord who inhabits eternity, and I will heal him. This is the peace Jesus proclaims to his disciples. It's the peace he proclaims to us. You know, as the disciples were glad when they saw Jesus. I know, and I wonder for myself, I wonder for all of us. Have our hearts grown cold? Do our hearts grow cold? Maybe it's not cold right now. Maybe you're not weary and tired right now, but we all have felt that experience, that tiredness, the weariness, the coldness that comes as we give into temptation, as we long for the things of the world more, as we find ourselves further away from God, we pick up our Bibles. Maybe we don't pick up our Bibles for a while, and when we do, it just feels dry. feels empty and lifeless. What Jesus would call us to do is what he calls us to do in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that by the Spirit, to see and behold Jesus. That as we see and behold him, as we press on into him, maybe even like Jacob, as we lay hold of him and won't let go until he blesses us, to press hard after him, not because we have to earn his presence back, but sometimes he withholds his presence from us or the experience of this peace from us to remind us to press hard after him that he is really more, more valuable to us, more satisfying to us than the world around us. As we press hard into him, he will draw near to us. I love in James 4 when when he's calling them to repentance But he reminds them, as you draw near to the Lord, the Lord will draw near to you, and he gives more grace. He gives more grace. The song that we sang today, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies he brings. It's from Lamentations, this song of woe and pain. And yet he could say, new morning mercies are for me. This is what Jesus has earned for us. He doesn't give us self-help or works to do. He offers us peace. He gives us peace. And peace is what brings us back to him. And Jesus goes on after saying, peace be with you. He gives us peace so that we might give peace. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending that construction, we see it in our, in our English language, but it's also clear in the Greek as well, that when it says, as and even so, there's a, there's a comparison there. As Jesus was sent into the world, so we are sent into the world. But well, what does that mean? Because obviously we're not the second person of the Trinity. We're not taking on flesh for the first time. How do we go out into the world? Well, The first thing we would see is we go out into the world to proclaim the peace that Jesus won on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are ministers, ambassadors of Christ, bringing to people the ministry of reconciliation. That word means to reconcile, to bring friends back together. To bring people together and to make friendship. We proclaim the peace that Jesus has made. Jesus came to proclaim uh, peace and he accomplished it. He proclaimed peace to his church. And he sends us into the world to preach and bring that message of peace we are all sent you don't have to go to a foreign country to be a missionary you don't have to come out to utah which is like a foreign country to be a missionary if you are a missionary you are sent with the gospel of peace even if it's just downstairs into your living room you are sent to be an ambassador of christ wherever you are in your workplaces and your friendships with your home, with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, with your friends. We are sent out. So, how does God do this? How does Jesus send us? Well, He breathed on them. <laughs> he breathes on them. This is the gathering of peace. This is the spirit and the keys of the kingdom. Jesus sends his people out by breathing on them. We're reminded, and your, your Bible might have a footnote to bring you back to Genesis 2-7. In Genesis 2-7, God creates man from the dust. It says he formed and he shaped man, and then he breathed on him, and man became the living being. God didn't breathe on the rest of the animals and the rest of the creation, but he breathed into Adam. And as he breathed into Adam, Adam became not just living like the animals, but living with a soul and a spirit that, that know that can now commune with God. He breathed on him his communicable attributes, the, the theologians tell us. He gave him life. When God breathes on his church, and that word for breath is the same word that we have for spirit in both Hebrew and Greek. When he breathes on his people, he's giving them the Holy Spirit. And every person who has believed in Christ, if you've believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God has made his temple, his dwelling place in you. And you have the Holy Spirit. You have, you are a new man, a new creation, a new woman. That's what, again, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. Behold, you are a new creation. Jesus is the first new man. The new Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam. And from him, he creates a new people. And that's who we are. We're new in him. But he doesn't just create new individuals. He creates a new body. Ephesians tells us we are the body of Christ. Every part, every joint, every ligament joined together, working together to bring about the glory and knowledge of God to the world. Jesus didn't just breathe on them, but he told them that they had the keys of the kingdom. And where am I that? In verse 23, he tells them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What on earth does that mean? Is this just for the apostles? Is this for everybody? Is this for his church? What what is this for? What does it mean that they get to forgive or deny forgiveness? Well, I think the Bible and and other passages tells us fairly clearly what this is. In Matthew uh, 16 and 18, uh, Matthew 16, Jesus asks Peter, who who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter proclaims, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, uh, Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you,
4: but my Father who
3: is in heaven. And and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right, so that's the keys to bind on earth, to bind in heaven, to loose on earth, to loose in heaven. So who gets this? Peter, the popes, right? That's where Catholicism gets that, is that Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. There's a line of succession from Peter of all these popes. Well, Jesus tells us who gets that in two chapters over in Matthew eighteen. And in Matthew 18, talking, we're, and we know these passages from how, what do we do when somebody sins against us, right? Well, if that person doesn't, uh, doesn't repent, well, I will just read the whole passage. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Thus, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Matthew 16, 18, the first time that Jesus used the word church. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. among them. So there he says, the gathering of the church comes together with Christ in their midst. So there's a sense in which yet, as Christians we all have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus also, in a special, particular way, gathers and is present in the gathering of his body. As he gathers the church together by that proclamation of peace, he gathers together a people of peace. And as that people is gathered, they exercise the keys of the kingdom. And those keys of the kingdom are to recognize, not to proclaim, thus you are forgiven and give forgiveness, but to recognize this person demonstrates that they have been forgiven. Or this person does not demonstrate, and thus must be discipline perhaps even excommunicated in the hopes that God will bring them back to him. The role of the church, one of the roles of the church, one of the ways we make Jesus known is by gathering together and saying, these are the people of God. This isn't a loose collection of people who happen to like similar things. This isn't a social club. This is the body of the living Christ. And so it's incumbent on the church to recognize who is and who isn't, as best as the church is able to do. Who is and isn't a member of the body. That's why churches practice membership. It should be why. It shouldn't be a political thing or a numbers thing or a church growth thing. It should be about recognizing and then rejoicing in who is the member of the church. Or then, soberly, recognizing that somebody has shown themselves to not as John said in 1 John, that you would recognize them, that those who have left us proven that they are not of us. And just to make it even more explicit, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, Paul brings all these things together. Speaking of an issue of discipline in the Corinthian church, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan from the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We gather together in the name of Jesus, in the power of the spirit, the power of Jesus Christ to remember and recognize that we are in Christ. And so membership is one of the ways that we do that. And we do that through through the ordinances that Jesus gave. That's what baptism is all about. Recognizing proclaiming this person is a member of the body of Christ. And we do that in communion. When we come together, when we break bread, when we take the cup, we're proclaiming again that this Jesus died for us. That's what communion and baptism these ordinances are all about, is about the membership of the body. This is what Jesus does in order to send us out, This, I think, is one of the most, in our day and age, it is so backward from what we're taught, right? What does it mean to be sent? It means to go out and do, and go and reach those people. And that's awesome. That's great. Yes, we need to go out and preach the gospel as individuals. But we preach the gospel most clearly and most fully in the gathering of the body on Sunday mornings. On Sundays, when we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. You are called, well, by exercising these keys, these what we call the ordinary means of grace, regular things. There's nothing magical or amazing outwardly about these things, but they are, they are ordinary, but they are the ways in which God communicates His grace to us, and we receive it by faith. By exercising these things, we make Jesus known to us. What we're doing here this morning is as missionally important as going out tomorrow into our workplaces and telling somebody about Jesus. Because we made Jesus known here together. You're called to gather together, preach the gospel, and then go out to the world as the kingdom of God living in the midst of a worldly kingdom. Mission happens through the ordinary means of grace, and as those means of grace shape us. And live that out in, every, in our everyday lives. And so from that, I just have a few points of brief points of application. Number one, what are you afraid of? We're all fearful. We're all likely disciples. So what is it that we're afraid of? Are we afraid of persecution? Are we afraid of what others might think of us? Are we afraid of viruses? And the things in the world all these might be legitimate fears. All the conspiracy theories that we hear, they might even be true. It wouldn't take much to convince me that evil people gather together to do evil things on a grand scale. That's what they did to Jesus, to constantly do those things. So what if they're true? What if Biden's going to ruin America or Trump already did? What if? What are we afraid of? Maybe what we're most afraid of is waking up tomorrow morning and dealing with the everyday pressures of life. Maybe that's our greatest fear. Greatest fear. When, when we go to sleep and we close our eyes and sleep doesn't come, and we're worried about the things of today, tomorrow, the future, the depression of my time, suicidal thoughts. What is it that we're afraid of? What we need.
4: Ultimately
3: is a peace that comes from God. We need peace. And we can't find that peace in the world. That doesn't mean we don't use means. Right? We wear seatbelts on our way to church. You know, if if there's clinical depression, we should use medications that God's provided. That's a grace. We use the means that God's given, but we don't put our hope in those means ultimately to give us life. We don't put our hope in a good night's sleep, we don't put our hope in a good 401k, a happy day, our home life. Yeah. That's not where our hope is. Our hope rests ultimately on Christ. The fact that your life is hidden with Christ. And if you know him and he knows you, you have that peace.
4: Yeah.
3: You have that peace. Number two, there is nothing more important on the face of earth than the church of Jesus. There is nothing more important on earth than God's church. God's church is the home of the Holy Spirit. It's the place where the keys of the kingdom are exercised. There is nothing more vital or exciting or important than that. You are eternal. All of your family relations will go away in heaven. We won't be husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. We will be brothers and sisters in Christ. The only thing that goes from here into heaven is God's word and God's church. So there's nothing more important than the church of Christ. And so may we rejoice and be glad in it. And that's what's happening today. is you're coming together to be a church organized covenanted together under him according to God's word, what is more important you know, as I was reading through and thinking through the, the Constitution Service tonight, I was looking at that, and I, I've gotten the pleasure of doing a few weddings, and it feels kind of like a wedding, right? Yeah. And it should. It should. In, in, a, in a spiritual way, there's, there's a coming together and a joy in coming together as a body to be a part of one another, to commit to one another, to love one another, to, love one another, to serve one another. Now, again, it's not an organizational membership, by like going to Planet Fitness and you know, getting your membership card, things like that. No, this is just this is about being part of God's eternal work that He started and begin and end throughout all of time. And lastly, what? behold your God who made peace. If there's nothing else you get from us today, behold Jesus, who made peace who offers you peace, who gives you his peace. My, uh, the pastor of our church that sent us to plant in Utah would always say, that it's stuck with me because it's so true, that there is, there is nothing more practical, there's nothing more applicational to life than to see and behold in God. And we can make all kinds of practical applications and it's good to make practical applications about how we handle our day in light of the gospel. But the most important thing is to see and behold Jesus Christ through the Spirit in His Word. And as you do that, God will give you what you need. God will lead you as a good shepherd to those green pastures and those still waters. That is His heart for you. And as you see and behold Him, you have everything you need in Christ. And you don't just need that if you're a sinner who doesn't know Jesus. You who are in Christ need that today. We need that every day to be refreshed, to be reminded that we have been reconciled to God and we are right with Him in Christ so that if the world fades away, fall apart, we have we have Jesus. So we need peace, and we've been given peace. The world needs peace. So we proclaim peace. And because of that, we must be a people of peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. We praise you because you are the one who has made peace for us. You are the one who who reconciled us to God, who dwells in us by your Spirit, who comforts us in our affliction, who encourages us and gives us joy. Father, I pray for us that whether our joy is waning or is full, that you would remind us again of who you are and that we would hear from your lips to us through your word. Peace. My peace I give to you. As Paul said to all the churches that he wrote to, grace to you and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because not only are we united to you, but we are united together in the peace that you have won for us on the cross. So we praise you, Jesus. and We thank you. May your word reverberate in our hearts this day.
2: This is solid. i we hey.
1: missed uh, the people that are sticking around for the Constitution service this evening if you want to stick around for a couple minutes we can talk for 10 minutes or so and then we'll just